back to the second episode of the Cross-Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week. My name's Christopher Brown, the host of the show, and today we are sitting down with three fantastic guests who all support the day-to-day operations of the Huntington Society of Canada. In today's episode, we speak with Bernadette, the Resource Director of the Huntington Society of Canada for Northern Alberta, Shelley, the Resource Director of the Huntington Society of Canada for Southern Alberta, and Corey, the National Social Worker for the Huntington Society of Canada. During today's episode, we talk about how their roles help families, how they have adapted to the changing world of COVID-19, and while there are 29 chapters of the Huntington Society of Canada, the 29 chapters work together to ensure the common goal of helping families in their time of need is met. So, please enjoy Cross-Border Interviews Huntington Awareness Week featuring Shelley, Bernadette, and Corey. jump right into this so that way uh, I'm assuming you guys all have busy days ahead of you so I, I don't want to take up as, as much time as I possibly uh, can for you so before we do start I, uh, just for my listeners uh, can I get everyone to say their name and then uh, what your job title is so we'll start with uh, Shelly and then we'll go to Bernadette and then Corey. My name is Shelly Teeler. I am a resource centre director with the Huntington Society and I work in southern Alberta. Okay. And I'm Bernie Madrowski, and I'm in Northern Alberta as the um, the resource director. And I'm Corey Janke, and I'm living in Ontario, and I currently am in the role of national uh, support social worker. Okay, awesome. Greatly appreciate it. So to get that out of the way, so instead of me ask, uh, introducing you every single time you talk, now people will know your voices, so that way uh, we don't have to keep on introducing you each time. So uh, some of these questions I'll be asking it will be more of a roundtable discussion. Some of them will be more poignant to individual people. But to get this out of the way, how does your job, starting with Shelley and again in the order that we just went, how does your job... Uh, Coalate to the Huntington Society of Canada. So, what do you do? My job, my job, is centers on promoting quality of life for individuals that are impacted by HD, and and that can be individuals themselves. Um, it can be people with HD, people who are at risk, people who are gene positive and haven't uh, chosen, um, they don't know the gene status yet. It can be care partners, it can be friends, it can be the community. And it goes broader than that. We do a lot of work and education within the healthcare system. Um, so the role is really, and you'll have the others as well, it really is broad. It's individualized to the needs of, of every person that we, we, you know, we have contact with. There's a strong community development component, there's an advocacy component. So it's anything HD related. Okay. Um, Bernie, I'm assuming you'd be saying the same thing, but uh, in your words, what do you do? I think, um, I don't know if I can word it better than what Shelley has said. Um, uh, I think the advocacy, looking for resources, connecting um, clients, um, which as Shelley said, is as broad as people that are gene positive to family, to um to caregivers and connecting people, um, and uh, again, that that quality of life is so very important. And over to you, Corey. Um, so I'm a social worker as well, and I work more nationally at the moment. Um, I was the role was originally developed to start to look at uh, how we can support people that are living across Canada that are not necessarily um, able to access the resources that are often uh, provided in more metro areas. Um, so we were looking at developing virtual support groups. Um, and so that's basically uh, part of the role that I do. The other part is uh, supporting the youth component of our of our programs across the country. Um, I work with a colleague of mine and we oversee a youth mentorship program where we train uh, young adults to help support younger adults who are growing up in families uh, of Huntington 
Lincoln's uh, people. Um, and so it's just as much as we can do to try to uh, support people globally or nationally uh, is what my role is. Okay, awesome. So um, to get this question out of the way, we will. Um, with COVID-19, how has your job uh, been affected by the uh, changing atmosphere of uh, Canada and around the world with everyone having to social distance? Has it or are you still able to provide the services that you were able to provide beforehand, but more virtually now? So we'll start with you, Bernie. It is... Uh we are able to continue with our work, but we're not doing face-to-face -face contact with our um, clients. We are uh, doing a lot of work by phone um, and uh, by uh, emails if it's not personal or private. And uh, we're still keeping busy and we're still connecting with um, healthcare providers, um, by a via phone and doing um, referrals to uh, agencies, so we're still keeping busy. Awesome. Uh, just to pay. And also, oh, go ahead. just the last thing is for our groups. Our groups um, are also being done by uh, by phone or virtually. Now, just to piggyback on that, just from uh, 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 Bernie, you're based in Edmonton, correct? Yes. Uh, Shelly, you're based in Calgary. So yeah. before COVID happened, was the virtual outreach to rural communities, like uh, Corey had said, uh, a little bit harder? Or were you still able to connect with those rural communities uh, who might, uh, those rural families who have, uh, who are uh, affected by Huntington's? I think the advantage is because we are community-based, we, we spend a lot of time traveling throughout our region. So Bernie and my, um, the touch point for us is Red Deer. And so I'm sort of Red Deer South and she, you know, is Red Deer North. And, and so we've always gone out and done a lot of work within our communities. And so I'm often traveling. We do a lot of travel each month. Sometimes we do overnight to be able to reach our communities, you know, elsewhere in the province. I think COVID has, while there have for sure been challenges in terms of not being able to see people face to face, it's given us some good opportunities to do a lot more by way of exploring other, other means. So we're doing a lot, as Bernie says, like groups that are over the phone. And so instead of someone from, say, Red Deer coming to Calgary for a group, they can pick up the phone and, and participate that way. So we're seeing more people, you know, people that haven't joined us before participate. So there will definitely be aspects of, um, you know, that we've taken away from working differently here that, um, that we'll use, you know, in the future. Okay, and now Corey, um, uh, with the, with the social worker, and uh, I apologize for being ignorant when I ask this question. I'm assuming social workers are going into the household to help those families who are uh, uh, who have been affected by Huntington's, correct? Yeah, for the most part, uh, we meet families where families want to be met. Uh, and so depending on the, the situation, sometimes people are going into family homes. Um, other times they're meeting at clinics um, or they're meeting um, in different areas in the community. So with the COVID-19, that is kind of uh, made it harder for your job to actually meet with those family members because a you don't you want to practice what the chief medical officers of uh, both provinces, Ontario, Alberta, even around Canada, what they're saying about social distancing and staying back, but also uh, you don't want to potentially infect a family member with COVID if you have it. So how are you balancing that work life right now to ensure that what families are getting is what you were offering before this pandemic happened? Uh, I think the COVID situation is impacting my colleagues much more than myself at this point because I am uh, much more of a virtual support at this point. Uh, so uh, it has preempted uh, <laughs> some of the work that we were going to be planning on doing because it has pushed a number of the RCDs like Shelley um, and Bernie into offering um, support in various ways that necessarily weren't as readily used in the past. 
Um, so there's there's that. The other part of my role is I do a, a, a Facebook uh, support group, and it's a closed group. Um, so that was already up and running since la- the end of last year, uh, and we have about 300 people that are participating in that. Uh, and I monitor that on a daily basis. So my particular job has not really changed significantly um, because I'm kind of floating up in the air a little bit, but uh, my colleagues are much more on the ground and certainly it has impacted on how they deliver their services for sure. So just on that virtual uh, growth, Shelly just wants to join in there. Can I just add, I think that that's where the value of partnerships come in. And I think that we are really good at developing those relationships. And so there have been instances in the last couple of weeks where I've needed documentation to be taken to a client, for example, it's tax season. And so, you know, we've got a couple of folks that need help. And so that's where, for example, we've got home care um, staff that are going into homes, uh, Alberta health care, obviously, uh, staff that are providing day to day, you know, bathing, other other supports in the home. And so what we've done is when families have given us permission, we are, you know, we are working through the home care staff person that is in the home already. And so if there's anything that needs to get done, so that's, yeah. So, I mean, our, our continuum of supports is is way beyond our team. And so you just tap into our, our relationships um, with our, with the other professionals. And just to add on that, we're using, um, I'm finding that I'm also using an old method of mail, <laughs> you know, because um, we have clients that may not have access to computers and Wi-Fi. So um, I'm finding out, finding that I am mailing items and forms to people and having them phone me and we walk through completing the form instead of being there face to face and doing that. Awesome. Um, just to piggyback on uh, what Corey was talking about, the uh, virtual group that you moderate, um, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I, I got a bit of background on it before the interview, uh, this, that's geared towards more youth, correct? Uh, no, not the one that's on that I'm overseeing in the Facebook uh, group itself. That's open to anyone that lives in Canada that is affected by Huntington's on any level. So it can be someone that has tested gene positive, someone who's at risk, uh, a family member or a friend who's supporting someone within the community. So the Facebook group is is that, and it includes uh, both youth and adults. Okay. The other component of my job uh, is supporting the youth, and that is specific to youth. And we classify youth anywhere between like 35 and under. Okay. So now is the uh, the, the, the the main group, the one that's uh, accessible to all, is that public knowledge? Is it a private group where only certain people can join? Or uh, because the, re- the reason I'm asking is, uh, is there a way that I can get that uh, Facebook group to make sure that people who might not know about it are aware of it on our, on the podcast uh, website and in the show notes? Yeah, it's through Facebook. Um, it, it's um, called the Huntington Society of Canada Closed Facebook Support Group. It's a tongue, uh, like a tongue twister store. Um, but you do need to answer uh, a few questions. Um, we need to make sure that people that are wanting to join actually live in Canada because it is part of our programming. And therefore, from a liability perspective, we can only serve people in Canada. Um, it, there's a, rules of conduct that people have to agree to. Uh, we're not looking to have this as an, uh, a venue for people to um, market products or drugs. Um, we want to maintain confidentiality. Uh, we want to remain uh, respectful and kind to one another. And so there's a set of rules that people have to agree to before they are let into the group. Okay, awesome. Well, it's, it's, I'm glad that there is that virtual group that people can see uh, other families who are going through it across Canada. So that's greatly appreciated. Um, looking at uh, Bernie, uh, Bernie and you, Shelley, uh, education is one of the key priorities of your job is to educate uh, families who are going through this, friends who are learning a little bit more about this. So how, how do you, in your role, help educate? Because we talked about it a little bit beforehand. What's the main component of education in your positions? So we'll start with either one of you, whoever wants to take it first. The first thing is, is to find out where people are at, because 
many of our families have been living this for much longer than we have been involved. So I think finding out where they're at and what information they have, because I think we learn as much from the families as uh, we give them. Um, I think we listen, we answer questions, um, we try to dispel myths, um, let update them on what's new and available um, in, uh, in research, uh, connecting them to the physicians that uh, would have knowledge on that and can provide services to them. Am I on the right track there, Shelley? How about you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I also think, and again, Corey and Bernie have been at this for a lot longer than I have, so I'm kind of relying on them to, to fill in the gaps here. I, I, I sort of see two sort of differences. Um, we've got many families that, like Bernie says, have got this, you know, sometimes a generational experience with HD. And then we've got some who haven't known that there was HD in the family and it might have been, you know, misdiagnosed or, you know, family members have been adopted. So there's no, you know, there's this gap. And those can be a blessing and a curse because sometimes, you know, they, as Bernie says, they've got this wealth of experience. Um, and then, but the, the downside to that is that we often have to say to individuals that have been diagnosed your trajectory and the progression of your disease is going to be your own. Don't, you know, immediately think that, that the, you know, the way that it was for your parent is the way that it's going to be for you. Um, and yet I think it's natural that people, you know, that, that's the, the lens with which people see it. The other side is people that, that don't know about HD in the family and who might make decisions, you know, based on sort of a lack of information. So, so that's the one side. Um, and then just to add to uh, the aspect of the education, I mean, we, we do the education in so many different ways. It's one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with, with individuals with HD, with partners. We also do a lot of education with care facilities, with, uh, you know, the medical, uh, well, with doctors, with, you know, um, and, and other healthcare providers. So it really depends on, on where it's needed. Corey, do you have anything to add? To oh, add, go ahead, Bernie. Uh, to add to that, we all nationally we also have what's called continuing education forums, and um, where we will have uh, either live or taped, um, you know, sessions where maybe a physician will talk about research. Um, I know in Edmonton, one of the things that the chapter likes to organize is wellness days, where we bring in some of our local experts, whether it's a psychiatrist, the neurologist, uh, the research nurse, a dietitian, to provide families with that information to help them manage day to day also. Okay. Uh, Corey, do you have anything to add about education in your role? Uh, not so much. The society spends a lot of uh, energy on providing uh, easily accessible resources that talk about varying things such as, and we have, uh, you know, everything from more thick, comprehensive uh, booklets, if you will, on various topics uh, to uh, fact sheets that are like really quick points around a very specific issue uh, like depression or like swallowing challenges. Um, those are really great uh, to kind of throw up onto the Facebook page if people are really struggling uh, with a, a specific issue. Um, it summarizes things really, really quickly. Uh, these are available to our community virtually uh, so they can download things off the internet or read them off the uh, webpage um, at the Huntington Society of Canada um, and uh, all the resource center directors and social workers across Canada usually have a few of these in their uh, nets they can hand out as well uh, if people are looking for a hard copy. Um, so we just, we, we, as an organization that kind of functions as a well-oiled wheel and um, we all benefit from everything that each component of the, of the society is able to offer. Uh, when I was speaking to a few, uh, uh, the past president and the president of the Southern Alberta chapter of the Huntington Society, they said that, like you just alluded to, Corey, that 
what is what happens in one chapter or one area of the country is shared with the rest of the country. It's not uh, one uh, part of the country against another part of the country. It's everyone is in this together. Um, so, Shelley, uh, Bernie, and Corey, anyone can answer this. Um, do you find it easy to communicate with your uh equal partners in Nova Scotia in uh, BC and oh Corey wants to play this one first so go ahead <laughs> um, I've been in the organization for many many years and one of the reasons why I haven't left the organization is because of the people um, that are staffed by the organization but as well as the family members that I've been able to uh, be so blessed to work with over the years um, Globally speaking, the Huntington's community is uh, a very open community. Uh, and even with all of the um, science that's happening right now in terms of treatments and potential cures and things like that, um, it, it's been our experience that as soon as um, one lab discovers something that's very, very important, they share that information because we know that the more information that gets shared, the closer we are to a treatment or something for this organization. That is much more of a macro kind of philosophy that the Huntington's community holds, and nationally we are no different. Um, we have been blessed to have um, regular staff meetings uh, amongst the social workers across Canada uh, where we share information. Uh, our emails are blowing up all the time with, hey, I just found this resource, think you might be able to use it at some point, and it kind of goes out. Um, we we call upon each other uh, if we're having a difficult uh, time with a particular case. We put it out to the to our team for some support and some uh, suggestions on how to work it. So it is a very open um, dialogue between the staff of, of uh, this community um, because it is such a complex and um, uh interesting disease that there isn't a recipe ever. Uh, it takes a lot of um, thinking outside of the box. It thinks a lot of community, um, uh, you know, the, the expression that it takes a village to uh, raise a child, you know, I think is <laughs> it takes a lot of people. So we share in that. Uh, and it really is a difficult challenge sometimes, the work that gets done here. And so the support that happens naturally with within our team uh, allows everyone to kind of keep getting up the next day and going back out there to do the work that they do. Awesome. Go ahead, Bernie. And I, and I think adding to that is that I really appreciate um, everybody's expertise. You know, um, we have people across the country that we work with that have such varied backgrounds and experiences and um I, I'm able to use that expertise when I'm having some difficulty. You know, I'll know that I can call Corey for, you know, maybe talking about youth or certain aspects of it, of uh, working with HD that I've heard him talk about. And the same goes with Shelley. Shelley and I consult with each other quite regularly. Um, and sometimes it's just to able to talk to somebody about what the issue is and getting a different perspective you know and sometimes we can ground each other <laughs> and I think that's uh, important for us when we get um, very involved in a, a difficult situation so it's it's nice to have people that you can trust and that you respect and uh, I, I truly have that for the people across the country that I work with. Just a last point uh, there, we also have families move, you know, there's mobility within our community, it's a family disease and so sometimes one of our colleagues will be working with a another family member or have a family member in that, you know, in another geographic location. So. I think that for me, we have this great continuum of services between us um, and then also flowing into, you know, Corey's work nationally. So everything kind of dovetails really well. Oh, that's awesome. Now, um, uh, we'll we'll jump into a little a wheelhouse that Corey is able to talk about a little bit more here. Um, youth Huntington's, uh, it's juvenile Huntington's disease, correct? 
that's the correct name. Um, so seeing families who have children who are going through juvenile Huntington's disease is uh, a burden on every family, on friends. Um, how do you help a child who is going through this or a uh, youth? As you said, they're younger than 34, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so the average age of onset around the juvenile form is usually uh, like 13 to 18 years of age. So how how do you how do you work with the families of uh, uh, youth who have uh, been diagnosed with Huntington's? Uh, well, I, I again, I think that this is uh, a vein that touches all of the, my colleagues, not just myself, um, because uh, I'm only involved if people reach out to me from a youth perspective. Um, more often than not, people like Bernie or um, Shelley are dealing with the families that are that are kind of coming to terms with this. But from a, a national perspective, I think we need to look at uh, the symptoms of juvenile Huntington's. Huntington's disease is quite different than adult onset, um, and and therefore uh, we need to be able to kind of support in a bit of a different way uh, when it comes to that. Um, adult onset usually is happening between you know 35 and 40 or a little bit later, so most people are kind of out in the workforce, whereas in the juvenile, most kids are still in the school system. So we are often advocating within the school system uh, to try to help uh, promote their independence and their successes in their studies. Um, there's a lot of grief uh, work that has to happen um, when, uh, you know, a family recognizes that a young child is now affected by this disease. We always know that there's a 50-50% risk if a parent has the disease, um, but oftentimes we're able to kind of put that off and say, hey, it's going to come down the road and all of a sudden your 17-year-old is starting to show these symptoms and the impact that that can have when you have an adult in the same home affected by Huntington's disease and you're also trying to cope for a young child who is starting to experience challenges because of the disease. So a lot of emotional support, a lot of education, a lot of community linkages. Um, but certainly I think the biggest piece is around supporting them through their grief. And has technology, as technology changes, have you been able to adapt new technology to help uh, youth, juvenile, uh, even people with uh, Huntington's, the onset uh, Huntington's? Are you able to adapt uh, new technology to your everyday use? Yes, we are. We are doing different things with technology than we ever have, particularly with the COVID kind of giving us a, a good push. Um, but the challenges with this disease is that there are so many cog cognitive complications that come as part of this disease. And depending on where people are at in their disease process, uh, accessing technology can be challenging. Um, and so uh, there, there's that barrier to it. As uh, Bernie alluded to earlier, too, we're working with a lot of rural people who may or may not have access to technology. Uh, so, yes, it is helpful. It's another way of reaching people in a really quick and direct way. Um, but it, it, with our community, it, it does come with many challenges as well. What's the biggest challenge that we're facing outside of COVID? If COVID was not around right now, what's the biggest challenge that uh, uh, you as work support workers for people with the Huntington's face today? The biggest challenge I would have to say is engaging with people. Um, I think, you know, historically we need to recognize that uh, until this disease became a little bit more known and understood. There was a lot of traumatic uh, care that was provided to people living with Huntington's disease. Uh, many times they were put into uh, psychiatric institutions and kind of forgotten about or, you know, even to this day, um, many of our symptomatic uh, individuals that are walking down the street with all these jerky movements and things like that are often picked up and suspected of being uh, drunk or, uh, you know, uh, using substances and things like that. Um, so intergenerate intergenerationally there is um an informed secrecy about this um and that it's a you know we don't talk about this outside of our family walls um and so developing a trusting 
place for people to land where they are feeling comfortable and that they can open up their doors to receive the support um, is getting easier all the time. But depending on families' histories, uh, that can be a huge barrier to us being able to help support them and making their quality of life hopefully a little bit better. Bernie and Shelley, do you want to add anything to that? Maybe adding also what Corey alluded to earlier was the grief. I think helping people work through that multi-generational grief uh, that they're experiencing um, because they, people, the families know what the future is like and uh, being able to support them honestly and um, openly with that, acknowledging what they're going through and being able to connect them with others that may be able to support them, um, whether it's through support groups um, or um, education sessions, um, getting them to be uh, people to be open to looking at other means of support. I'm not sure that I want to open up a can of worms here, but I think that, and I think that Bernie and Corey have addressed it really well. I think just sort of drilling a little bit deeper, I think is also that some of the challenges that come with the progression of the disease, you know, we want to keep people as independent as possible. Their quality of life is essential. Um, what, something that, that often shows up or, um, is obviously a lack of insight and self-awareness. And, and that does pose challenges as the disease progresses because you want individuals with HD to have a voice and to be at the forefront of um, you know, decisions about their future. And, and so for sure, the, you know, the lack of insight is a challenge that, that pops up in service delivery. Go for it. Go for it, Corey. Um, one other thing, you know, again, from a systems perspective, uh, I think the way our healthcare system is set up is a, a significant barrier or challenge for people living with Huntington's disease. Um, our wait list for movement disorders, for genetics testing, um, to go and see a specialist that's, uh, that works with Huntington's families often is an all-day affair because they have to drive for a certain period of time. They're in a waiting room for a long period of time. And that can be very difficult for both the patient as well as the family members that are trying to support that person to be at that appointment. Um, and so I think um, we are not likely reaching the number of people that we uh, could potentially be reaching because it's just too much work. It's just too much hassle. Um, and, uh, you know, it is what it is. But I think that's a significant barrier that kind of keeps people from getting all the treatment uh, available that that might benefit from them. And I think added to that is the social isolation that people have. Um, as people may progress in their disease, they may not go out into the community as much. They may um, not respond to our calls as often or as frequently. Um, and they are on their own. Or people are isolated because friends may have distanced themselves from them because they're not sure how to um, support, how to um, manage their relationships with someone as the, uh, the disease um, progresses. Um, the, uh, we had someone at a conference that talked about just being there for people with HD to support them. And I think that's one of the things that we try to do is to be there. We may not have all the solutions or the answers, but let's walk through this together. And hopefully that we can find some solutions to what's going on in their lives. Well. <laughs> One of the things that I, I, I could not find an answer to, and hopefully someone will be able to answer this for me. Um, <laughs> if a person reaches out and starts to get support for uh, whether it be that educational part, if they've been diagnosed with Huntington's, whether it be a juvenile, whether it be someone in their later years, um, 
Is it typical? And it's sort of on the uh, cusp of what Bernie just said. Is it typical for or is it uh, is it possible for them to say, you know what? I don't need your help anymore. I, I'm I'm OK with what everything's going with. I just I need you to back away because I need to do this myself and I do not need help. Corey, I saw you raise your hand. Let's go with you. Yeah. So the prognosis for someone with Huntington's is usually between 15 or 20 years after uh, diagnosis. Um, And that's kind of a uh, a pretty loose term as well. Um, But as as people uh, like Bernie or Shelley or myself uh, work with in these systems, um, we come and we go. So we we often will my catchphrase used to always be you didn't have a choice to get Huntington's you get a choice to have us you have to ask for us um, and so when we become involved sometimes it is uh, before anything significant happens and so we've developed this beautiful relationship with people before crisis hits oftentimes we don't get involved until a crisis has hit uh, and they don't have any other options so our work is very fluid um, we may have very long-standing histories with families but our touch points may be very sporadic throughout the disease process. We have other families who count on us on a monthly basis or a weekly basis, and we have contact with them all the time. So it's it's quite individual, um, but we we respond to need, and we only know need when either a family member or a community member reaches out uh, and suggests that there's a challenge that we might be able to be able to help them with. We get in there oftentimes, we help resolve it or fix it to the best of our ability, and it may just go away again until you know, the next life transition of going off to university happens, and then how does, that, how does that look, and what do we need to prepare for? So we come and we go as people need us. Now, just on that note, um, for, uh, for the uh, youth who are diagnosed, Parents might want their children to get help, might want their teenagers to get help with from a social worker to help them through that process. But a teenager, being a teenager, I was a teenager, we were all teenagers at once, always go against what your parents say. So is it more uh, difficult to work with teenagers because they're teenagers, even though they're going through that Huntington's? My experience is no. Okay. Um, it's almost harder to work with adults sometimes because uh, I think as consumers of healthcare, um, our youth are much different. Uh, they want to take control of their health care. They want uh, to have a say in what happens to them. Um, and so our youth population is very active. Uh, they're... Uh, they are connecting with each other. They are participating in the programs that the society has put forth for them. Um, on, and they are raising awareness and they're not as scared around the stigma as traditionally has been an issue for us. And they're getting out there and they're uh, doing fundraisers and all those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I think in general terms, it's, it's not a youth versus an adult. It's how the family approaches this disease um, and how open they are to getting the help that's available to them. And I think I'd like to put a plug in for the the youth mentorship program. I I don't know about you, but I think I, as a youth, I probably listen to people outside the family more than within the family. <laughs> you know, so with the youth mentorship program, connecting. Um, youth um, with a, a mentor um, that Corey and Aaron are involved with, um, there's good connections and they have somebody that they can develop a trusting relationship with. Go ahead, Corey. Uh, yeah, and one of the things that is really of great value to the youth in the organization is um, the young people affected by Huntington's disease. Uh, and that is uh, a, a chapter, a virtual chapter of youth across Canada uh, that gather together. Um, and the organization has been amazing at t- continuing to support uh, that youth's needs are different than adult needs sometimes and that they meet and they learn and they support one another perhaps in 
a different way than us oldies. Um, and so, you know, traditionally speaking, the society puts on a national conference every other year. At that national conference, we usually have one full day where we bring youth from across Canada together for one full day of education based on information that the youth have recognized as being important to them. So we often have speakers that talk about uh, relationships and, you know, dating with when you have Huntington's in the family, family planning to test or not to test. Um, so that's a really neat opportunity for these individuals to get to know each other. And then they go back out into their communities and they stay connected. Um, on the years that we don't have the national conference, the society has been very helpful at supporting um, YPAD days uh, nationally. So we usually have three different sites across Canada. We bring people together at those sites. We, you know, we have anywhere in some of the more rural, smaller provinces, 10 to 15 participants to Toronto. I think we had almost, I want to say 65 or 70 youth that came together last year. And I was in Calgary and we had about 40, I think. So um, once these people land into these groups, you know, 95% of the people stay involved, stay connected and really feel like they are in a place that they are understood. And if they don't have answers, they can get it from their peers. Now, um, this is a subject I, I want to broach, and it might be sensitive, so I apologize. Um, do your positions within the Huntington Society of Canada help families with grief when someone with Huntington's has taken their own life? So, Shelley, if you want to take this one first, because this is a subject that some people might not know that uh, Huntington's is uh, is essentially a death sentence and there is no cure to it. Um, and I, I know of people who have taken their lives uh, because of their diagnosis. So I want to know from the Huntington Society of Canada and from a social worker's perspective, it, does your work stop once the person has passed away? So. You know what, I'm, I'm going to maybe defer to Corey to start because he's been with the organization for, what, 20-something years. And so, Corey, I don't know if you want to jump in and maybe just respond, even from your earlier experience okay. as an RCD. Certainly, um, when I first started with the society, the risk of suicide was very high uh, when it came to this population. Um, I think that that stems from lack of hope, uh, lack of support, um, uh, no, you know, the medical community didn't know how to be helpful uh, in these situations. Again, as I alluded to earlier, oftentimes they would watch distant relatives go through very horrific experiences and they was like, no, thank you. I'm not signing up for that whatsoever. Um, I think with all of the progress that we have made through the years from a, from a society perspective, but I'm, I'm going to talk more globally as well. Um, I think we're getting in earlier. We're supporting people a little bit or a lot better than we ever has been uh, in the past. And so, uh, yes, while the risk of suicide is still there, I think I'm hoping that there are fewer incidences of people taking their lives because of the disease, because there is more hope, there is more support. Um, we, their community organizations are working better to help these people. Um, so yes, the answer to that question is we work with people the entire continuum of this uh, terrible disease. We also know that it is not just the individual that is suffering, that this is a family disease. And even when someone does pass away, it doesn't mean that the, the disease is gone because one of their children are likely to have developed or inherited the gene that will one day start to demonstrate symptoms of the disease. Um, so we work with them all across the board and grief is a theme that we are continually working with on a daily basis. It doesn't matter if it's through suicide, through loss of personality and roles to someone's death. It's just what we deal with every day. Bernie, I, th I thought I saw your hand there for a second. And I, I think Corey answered part of it. And uh, yes, I, I, we do keep involved with the families um, as long as they want to be involved with us. 
um, we will reach out to them and let them know that we are available to uh, whether it's uh, around grief issues, whether it's grief with death or grief because of other losses that happen in their life, um, that we will be there if they want our support. Um, and if it's um, if we feel that they need something more, we will try and connect them with um, grief support groups or counselors to make sure they get the services that they need and they can work through this as best that they can. Corey. Um, so on, on the, the topic of deaths and how people die, uh, a newer challenge that is meeting our community is the medical assistance in death. Uh, legislation. Um, and as the legislation stands at the moment, uh, we don't technically uh, qualify uh, for for that. However, from, um, uh, from our experience, there are a lot of people who are accessing that. And so I, prior to moving into this new role, when I was still in the RCD role, we're really starting to get into the uh, to, to conversations with family members, because again, our younger People are saying, no, thank you. I'm not doing that. Uh, so when it comes to a time, Corey, you have to help me figure out how I can access medical assistance and death. Um, and so I think we have a different conversation to have around grieving when family members choose to uh, end their life under their own kind of direction and under their own uh, wisdom um, and helping getting people on the same page as that's, that's the way that's going to go down for them. So this has added a whole new twist to the work that we do around grief. And adding to that is trying to work with individuals around getting um, their decision making um, in order, uh, which would be personal directives. So what are their wishes? Um, if I can't make a decision for myself, who is going to make that decision for me? And or can I put some of those instructions in my personal directive? Now, just on that topic here, and I, I, I didn't really like think about that when I was uh, preparing for this. Um, is it um, is it you is it unusual for people to not choose a family members when they choose a direct a directive for their will or for their uh, care at it once they've become potentially incapacitated? Because I'm thinking uh, as a person, if I if I had received the diagnosis that I have Huntington's, I wouldn't want to push put it on my family to have to look after me in that way. So I would want someone else who might not be so emotionally attached to it. Is that typical or do you do uh, pay uh, do? Uh, res Canadians who are diagnosed with Huntington's typically go to a family member to look after them. I think it's all over the map. Okay. I think some people do want family to uh, to be their decision maker. Others uh, may choose someone else, a friend, um, uh, another, uh, an extended relative, um, and. For some people, um, if they are not, if they do not have someone, um, they may choose the uh, the guardian's office to be their agent on their personal directive. Now, the guardian's office has to agree to that. Um, but if I um, if I don't have anyone, oh then they can choose the guardian's office. Okay. Corey, it looked like you wanted to talk there for a second, but I think uh, Bernie just answered the question or answered, <laughs> said what you were going to say. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think this is, as a population, Huntington's families are um, challenged by the same thing that other families are challenged by. Um, and so some families remain very, very close and other families are a little bit more um, distant uh, for a lot of different reasons. So uh, I think people choose whoever's closest to them to try to help in those regards. Uh, you know, generally speaking, none of us want to be a burden on our loved ones, but that's the way life goes sometimes. 
Um, and it's deciding who's going to follow my wishes, who is going to say, this is what Bernie would want, this is what Corey would want. Because as an agent, you're af- acting, as, you're making decisions the way I would make them, or to the best of your knowledge. Um, to sort of begin the wrap up here, because we're almost hitting 50 minutes and I don't want to keep you longer than an hour, because like I said, you probably have other work to do right now. That's more important. But um, what have you learned about yourself since being a uh, part of the Huntington Society of Canada? Wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> not about us, Chris. <laughs> but, and that's and that's an honest answer. It's not about you, right? It's not usually something that you think of. But um, and people might be listening to this and saying, "You, you, you have he- heard story after story of people going through this disease, people uh, with this disease of uh, losing their lives because of it." Do you guys have support groups that you guys can rely on each other? Because I know you talked about it being a family and you can talk to interprovince uh, uh, sort of uh, similar positions, but you you get a lot of this uh, the stories that families are going through, and it must put a weight on your shoulders as well. I'm going to put a twist on that. I've I, I've learned so much from the people that I've worked with, with uh, Huntington's, and um, I. It's a very dedicated group. They're supportive. They're very much a community. Um, they have um, people with HD, and their families have um, a resolve. A um, determination, almost a, I don't know what the right word is, maybe a tenacity, that they want to keep going. They're not going to give up hope. They're going to be there for each other. Um, They have this inner strength. Um, And I, it just amazes me um, for what some, what some families have gone through, how much they're still willing to give, give back to the society and to each other. Um, they want to support and help each other. Um, and the understanding that people have for each other. So I, I just sort of see it as a positive thing that I've gained from them and how can I incorporate some of that into my own life Um, and I you know using Shelley and Corey and other people across the country as a support um, because they they can understand if I'm having a rough day they understand because they've probably been through it also you know on another level than I have I don't know, Shelley, anything, or Corey? I, this, this is incredibly privileged work that we do. We get to meet people at, at times in their lives where, where they're at their most vulnerable. I've crossed paths in this work with the most amazing individuals. Um, both at family level, you know, with the people with HD, their families, and and with my peers. I also think that organizationally, we've got a strong support network, but I also have that in Calgary. We work really well and and closely with, you know, the genetics counselors, with the neurologists, with the psychiatrists, um, you know, some of the other physicians, um, the other care providers and, and other professionals. And so I do think that we are, you know, we keep one another buoyant. We have to focus on on some of the strengths and the you know the positives in the role as well. And as I said, I, I'm constantly reminded of how privileged we are to be part of people's lives. It's a welcoming community. It's a it's a community that is incredibly appreciative of um, the RCDs, and we're we're incorporated into into the lives of 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 our families here. And the chapters are amazing, also. Um, I believe you've spoken with um, the Southern Alberta chapter and 
you know, I have uh, three chapters in Northern Alberta. And, you know, if I ask for some information or if there's, uh, you know, if I don't know who to connect within a community, someone always has that information. Or if I need um, someone to go with me to a speaking engagement, there's always someone that's willing to be there um, and join us and, and you know, support the, uh, the society and um, their loved ones. Corey, do you want to jump in on this one? Yeah, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a twist on that. Um, I, I've been so grateful to work for the society for uh, close to 30 years, uh, but I'm now working with third generation uh, people that are being tested. Um, and so as the word has been used, I'm so privileged to be part of these families journey. Um, and, uh, you know, as Bernie had alluded to, we learn as much from our family members as uh, they learn from us. And I think one of the things that I have learned about myself, as well as, uh, you know, kind of walking this walk with all of the colleagues that I'm so uh, fortunate to be able to walk with, um, we are stronger than we sometimes think we are as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, strength doesn't come with by one, it comes by many. And we're blessed to be working for an organization that recognizes the hard work that has to be done and gives us every opportunity to kind of support one another so that we can, as I said earlier, kind of get back out there after a really lousy day and continue to fight the fight. That's awesome. Um, my last question is this, and it's sort of a generic question. I want everyone to participate on this one. How can Canadians learn more about this? What can they do to get more involved, to learn more about Huntington's, and to realize that this is affecting one in 7,000 Canadians? So what can Canadians do? Because this is not a disease that is well known. May is Huntington's Awareness Month. So how can, how can Canadians do more? Corey, let's start with you. Um, so you're right. One in 7,000 Canadians are affected by this disease, but the, stat the stats will say that one in 1,000 Canadians will come in contact with someone who has Huntington's disease. Um, I think over the last 10 years, Huntington's has become something that we're seeing more often in television series, so the name is a little bit more familiar out there. Um, but generally speaking, when compared to other organized or other uh, diseases, we are a very small number. And because of the family nature of this d d disease, people are exhausted, they're fatigued. Uh, and as much as they want to uh, raise funds for the society or, uh, you know, put on events for the society to raise awareness, uh, a lot of our families just don't have anything left in their cup to give. So if you come across anyone or you hear anyone around Huntington's disease and you are looking for some place to devote some energy and some time, connect with the local chapter, uh, reach out uh, to the Huntington Society webpage where there, we all can be reached and um, we can link you up with people that uh, would be more than happy to accept your support, your help, your muscle, whatever it is that you want to provide to the society. Bernadette Shelley? Well, our website, as Corey says, the Huntington Society of Canada, um, it has got the most amazing resources. It also has links to research, to clinical trials. It has got, you know, it, it, it is it is rich in, in its um, information. Um, and you can find our contact information. There's also um, a section there where anyone, even internationally, have, have been able to sort of, you know, send questions in and, and we can connect people um, with whoever they need to be reaching so I would go to that website in particular and then obviously each uh, chapter most chapters have got their own Facebook page um, and website as well and you know we like to talk <laughs> so <laughs> so we are quite willing to provide information education to groups that would like to hear more about HD, whether it's facilities, schools, um, service groups, we are quite happy to talk about what HD is, uh, what the society does, um, 
what we do um, and how we support people. So if if they if every anyone wants, give us a call and uh, we'd uh, come out and make arrangements to do uh, a talk. Awesome. Uh, does anyone have anything last they want to add into this? I want to thank everyone for even uh, considering sitting down with me. Hopefully it wasn't too uh, uh, in-depth or wasn't too uh, hard for you guys. I, I tried to keep it as uh, generic as possible, but also get the questions that I need to get answered. So thank you very much for this. Thank you for giving us some airtime. This is a, a great opportunity to spread uh, awareness about the disease and the work that we do. Well, I'm not sure if Shelley had uh, informed you, but uh, uh, one of my family members, uh, well, three of my family members have been diagnosed with Huntington. So any way that I can uh, give some outreach and uh, shine a little light onto this disease, I am more than willing to do it. And now that I have the uh, avenue to do it, why not help on the first May that I I started the podcast so greatly appreciate it for all three of you for sitting down and i think this hot podcast is going to be a great way to get some of that um information out and develop more awareness thank you for doing this chris no problem absolutely thank you chris thanks Once again, I want to thank our guests for coming in, sitting down, and telling their story. If you want to learn more about Huntington's disease, please visit HuntingtonSociety.ca. While there, please feel free to reach out to your local chapter, get involved, but if you can, please donate. Your donation can help families across Canada. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. And once again, I'm your host, Christopher Brown. We will be back tomorrow with another great episode of the Cross Border Interviews Huntington Awareness Week. Thank you.